Good morning. If uh, you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 6. The last time we looked at the book of Daniel, we saw the change in uh, world powers from the kingdom of Babylon to the kingdom of Persia and the coming of the, the Persian, the prophesied Persian ruler Cyrus, and he came and took control of Babylon. And uh, the setup to Daniel chapter 6 is that Cyrus has placed his uncle Darius in charge of the majority of the kingdom of Persia and has gone off to fight more wars. And uh, he specifically leaves him in the city of Babylon because that was one of the biggest cities in the entire empire. And so he wants him to be right there in the middle of all of it to make sure everything stays in order. And uh, Darius was brother-in-law to the king Nebuchadnezzar, who we saw back at the beginning of the book of Daniel. And so one of his purposes was to be like Nebuchadnezzar again. The Babylonians would have recognized the similarities there and would have liked to follow this individual. So he's there to keep the kingdom in order. And uh, one of the first things he does here in verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give account unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and the princes, because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So as we mentioned last time, Daniel was no longer a young man. He's, in fact, a very old man now. And um, this king sets up a, a kind of bureaucratic government. He's made it so that there are princes that rule over individual provinces, but they don't answer to him. They answer to three presidents. And so there's someone always to blame other than himself when something goes wrong. Lots of kings did this in the past, and he was very certain to make sure he looked good. But um, he sets Daniel as one of the presidents. He's one of the three guys that everybody answers to. And uh, he begins to notice that there's an excellent spirit in him. Although Daniel is old, Daniel is not in his home country. He's been a slave for most of his life now. He takes what he knows and takes his devotion to God and puts it into the work that's set before him. He doesn't let the fact that he's having to work with Persians get him down. He doesn't let the fact that he's away from all the other Jews get him down. He knows the right thing to do is to do his job and do it to the best of his ability. So that's what he does. And he does it so well that this king notices. And he's thinking to promote Daniel even more. He's going to be his right-hand man. That's what he's thinking about doing. And uh, when we find ourselves in situations like Daniel, which we may at some point find ourselves in that, that, that place... He had three friends we read about before this, and they're probably all dead. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they probably passed away, because Daniel has lived to an age that most people don't even live to at this point. I mean, he's, he's probably in his mid-90s. He's, he's a very aged man. So he's, he's alone. He's not alone, though. He has God. Right. And he remembers that. He doesn't have his friends anymore, but he remembers the right thing to do because God is with him. So this is the setup. He's, he's doing his job, and he's doing it well. Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find but they could not find none occasion nor fault for so much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find an occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together 
to the king and said unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whatsoever shall that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or, or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it that it be that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. So you have this this new kingdom, this Persian kingdom. It's different than Babylon because it's it's more structured. There's not just a king at the top. There's these governors. There's these princes. There's these presidents. It's it's, it's it's moving towards the governments that we see today. It's not just a king and everybody else. It's a king, presidents, groups of people that write laws, which is actually similar to what we have today. We have a president, and we have a group that writes laws. And so they're, they're headed towards that. And throughout history, there's been many people that will become very proud of their system of government and think that it will accomplish great things and build them a good nation, and that's all that they need. The problem with that is... is Men get greedy and ambitious, right. and they start lying. These presidents and princes met together and came up with this plan and then told the king that it was them, the captains and the governors. But the captains and governors weren't there. Right. They lied to him. And they don't like that Daniel is doing such a good job. They don't like that he's popular. But it's foolish for them to do this because we see that Daniel has an excellent spirit. He's doing the right things, and the king knows it. So they're wanting to replace somebody that's doing their job better than them. It doesn't make sense. They are completely selfish. They're trying to remove this man because he's in the way of their own success. And this is one of the problems of people that think government is such a good thing, that it's all that we need, is they try to rise through the ranks, and they'll try to replace people that are better at it than they are. And so they, take, they, they bring this, this plan to the king. They say, hey, we've got this law that uh, no one should pray or ask a petition of anyone except for you for 30 days. Now, to Darius, this is going to have two things in his mind. One, oh, I get to help more people. We're going to see Darius is a rather good man. He's not a, he's not a selfish man. But at the same time, this comes with the um, propelling himself. Men have to rely on him. So in the future, after these 30 days, they might think again, well, Darius is the one who helped me before, so let's go ask Darius again. So Darius might be happy that he's getting to help people, but at the same time, he's also realizing this will make me more powerful. And uh, that part gets into his head, and he doesn't think this through very far. So when they bring this to him, um, there in verse 8, this is something that's fundamentally different from the kingdom of Babylon. They say the law of the Medes and the Persians with changes not. Um, in Babylon, the king could write a law and say, mm, I don't like this law, tear it up and throw it away and do something else. In Persia, you couldn't do that. The king was subservient to the laws. If a law was written, the king had to obey it. He couldn't just get rid of it. And uh, that's how it is in America. The law is king of America. We wrote the Constitution. We wrote the Declaration of Independence. It is the rules, and you cannot change them. Right. And Persia is very similar to that. I think we should pay attention to that. So in verse 9, Wherefore King Darius signed the writing and the decree. He said, all right, this makes sense to me. I'll do it. Now, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened to his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day, 
and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. This is a very important detail. Daniel heard what they had done. They had heard that they had outlawed his praying to God. But he keeps doing it, but he does it in the exact same manner he was doing it before. He doesn't suddenly go, oh, you telling me I can't pray, I'm going to go pray in the, out in the open where everyone can see it and just in defiance. He doesn't change what he's doing based on what they're doing. Right. He's already doing this. He doesn't go hide either, though. So there's, there's two extremes we could fall into, trying to just be a showed man or cowering away. Daniel doesn't really have to make this decision because he's already doing the right thing. So it's good to develop habits when there's no pressure to develop the habits. It's good to develop habits just out of thankfulness to God, not out of pressure from man. So he prays three times a day looking towards Jerusalem. That's his home. He wants to think about home and think about the worship of God while praying to God. And uh, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man shall ask a petition of any god or any man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, which is one of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but make this petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and set in his heart, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Darius hasn't thought through what's going to happen. He didn't think about what they were trying to do, and he realizes, I have been tricked. My favorite my favorite man, my favorite worker, the best one I've got, they've just trapped him. They, they realized that he was following all the rules because his God told him to follow all the rules, so they made a rule that his God told him he couldn't follow. And uh, he sore displeased, and he works the entire rest of the day trying to figure out how to get Daniel out of this. Um, then, verse 15, Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto, unto the king, now, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. They come to him and say, hey, the day is up. This is the law. You made it. You've got you to follow it through. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that, <clears throat> that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither was instrument of music brought before him, and a sleep went from him. So the king tried his best. He couldn't find a way to deliver Daniel. And he says, the law says, I have to throw you into this den of lions. So he throws him in there and says, Daniel, your God can deliver you. I am assuming that Darius learned this from his history. He learned what had happened with his brother-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar. He had learned what happened with Belshazzar. He had probably talked to Daniel since he was his best worker. It's like, why, why are you so good at this? Because he told, he told him about his God. And uh, the king 
realizes that he can't help him. The only person that can help him is the God of Daniel. So you have the leader of a powerful government, greatest government in the world, that says, I can't help you. We cannot help you. You need your God. Then the king, and he, uh, he doesn't sleep the whole night. He's, he, um, he's very distressed. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamenting voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is that God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths, that they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then the king was exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Daniel prayed before, was trusting in God, even though the world had turned against him. He was thrown in the den of lions, and he continued to trust his God, even though he could not look to Jerusalem like he did before. His process was not necessary. What was necessary was his trust in the Lord. That's all he needed was to remember his Lord. And he was thrown down in the pit, and Darius comes and says, are, are, are you still alive, Daniel? Did your God deliver you? And he said, yes. He sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. Now, Daniel had watched Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and heard their story of when they were thrown to the fiery furnace and the angel of the Lord appeared and saved them. But he wasn't there. He only, only heard about it or saw it. And so he's thrown down in the dark. He can't see these lions. There's a, there's a rock over the top of it. That's a terrifying thing. This is, this is a new experience for him. He's gone his whole life without having to deal with something this bad. So don't think in your service to the Lord there's nothing new or no new temptation or no new trouble that you're going to be prepared for. There's, there's always changing things. But to, be, to be ready for that is the same way you're ready for everything else. You trust in the Lord and you trust in what he said. Right. So the angel of the Lord saves Daniel. That's a miraculous, it's a great miracle. And the king commanded and they brought those men which had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions them, their children, and their wives, and the lions had the mastery over, of them, and break all their bones in pieces, or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Now, this, this shows you that Darius is like his brother-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you tried to trick me. You're not having any of this again. So he takes all of them and their whole family, throws them in this den of lions, and also to let you know that Daniel didn't just get down there and hide. As soon as these people fell in, they didn't even touch the ground yet. They were ripped in pieces. So this is, this is, no, this is no Daniel's a, a good um, a circus performer and can deal with lions. That's not the case. God saved Daniel. And we see it here that there's a multitude of people thrown in, and they're torn to bits before they ever get, reach the bottom. And uh, I'm thankful I don't live in this time. I, I really am. <laughs> Then King Darius wrote unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. 
He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Darius makes a decree. All men should fear the God of Daniel. He is able to deliver in ways that no other God can, so he is the only living God. This is the true and living God, and you're going to fear him. And that's this, the basis of his decree. He makes sure everyone in, this, in his dominion knows this. And Daniel goes back to what he's doing. He prospers under the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus. He goes back to his job. He doesn't get puffed up. He doesn't go do something else. He doesn't try to elevate himself like these men before were doing. He goes right back to what he was doing. He continues to pray, and he continues to trust in God. Thank you. May the Lord bless you. Thank you, Brother Jonah. I'm very thankful for that sound teaching from the Word of God and to put our trust in the living God and not in the devices of men. I am thankful that we do live in a country that is based upon the rule of law. When a country departs from that, then you just basically get um, whoever has the largest group and the loudest voice takes charge. And that's many cry for a pure democracy, but you don't want a pure democracy. Because if you've got 51 lions and 49 sheep, then the sheep get eaten because of democracy. You want rule of law. And I pray and hope that our country will continue in that and will establish laws and continue to observe laws that keep the peace because governments are instituted among men. And if they follow Romans chapter 13, then they're instituted among men by the ordination of God to be his arm and his eyes and his power in the world. The subject that I have on my mind this morning is similar to this in that there are times of distress. If you would please turn over to Psalm chapter 12. As I was reading this psalm this past week, particularly the first two verses, the first thing that popped in my mind is, did David write this yesterday? Um, because the woke generation that we have now and the sensitivities of the world and the problems that exist today in our postmodern society are very well described in this psalm. And so that tells me there's nothing new under the sun. That any people that are out there today that think they've thought of something new that's going to make this world a better place and a utopia, if it's not from the Word of God, it's false and vanity and lies. And we need to be relying on the Word of God. I've just told you the end of my sermon before I got there. But let's read through this psalm because um, as we go through, uh, I want you to pay close attention to this last verse because this, this psalm ends differently than many of the other psalms. Most of the time, the pattern that David has is there is a problem. He cries unto God. God says what he's going to do. David receives hope in that, and the problem goes away. That's not what happens in this psalm. Let's read. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth. For faithful fail, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. 
The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. That last verse is shocking. That, that last verse makes me quiver to the core, but it's true. See, most Christianity today teaches that God um, is like our automatic teller machine. We go in and we put in our debit card, we type in our number, we tell him how much we want, he gives and delivers, and all is well and all is fine. The truth of the matter is, until the Lord returns, this earth is going to wax worse and worse. The Bible says it. And the truth of the matter is, if you have prayed to the Lord, many times the problem didn't go away immediately, did it? That's what faith is for. And David has faith in the Lord. And even though that it is a fact how this ends, he does not lose confidence and that's what I want you to notice from this. Even though David's going to end this psalm with such a statement, such a, a dramatically horrible sounding statement, it is a truth. But it's not the end of the story. So let's go back and look at what's going on here. We don't know the exact occasion. This psalm has a similar title to Psalm chapter 6 with one of the verses, one of the words removed, Neganoth. But it says Shemineth in there. That is a melody of eight tones in a lower key. It is a mournful psalm. It is a psalm of crying out. And so David cries out, help, Lord. Not knowing the occasion, we can look at some of the evidences in his crying out here. For the godly, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. David is not saying that the faithful children of God have stopped being faithful. He's saying they're dead. There are much less of them now than there were before. See, in David's life, there was a time where several years where he ran from King Saul. And you'll recall on one of those instances, he went to Halimelech in the tabernacle, and he lied. <laughs> and when he lied, he said, give us some bread, and you got a weapon. Priest took care of him, but there was a spy there named Doeg. And Doeg went and told Saul. And eventually what happens is Saul comes and kills all all of the priests of Nob. David knows it's his fault. 
And so David writes a few psalms in regard to that and does not deny one bit that it is his fault. But in this one, he looks at a bigger picture. He looks at those that trust in their own words compared to the word of God. I think this is um, one where David has come through some of that process of mind and thinking and praying and being forgiven by God for what he had done. And now he looks at things with more pure eyes, that there is the word of man and there is the word of God, and these two don't mix. And though they be diametrically opposed, David's going to say, it's not a battle as if somebody wonders how it's going to turn out. God is in charge. So David begins with the shortest prayer in the Bible, but the best one, help Lord. David doesn't begin by saying, this is not fair. I don't think I did anything wrong, so it shouldn't be this bad. My situation's worse than anybody's it's ever been. Oh, my goodness. Facebook is filled with stuff like that. There's no temptation come to man but what is common to men. We're not special. The troubles of this world come upon all men. And so we don't need to make excuses What do we need? We need help. So what do we say? Help. And who is it that he calls upon? In your Bible, Lord is all capitals, right? It's Jehovah, the existing one. We call upon the only one that can hear and the only one that can respond and the only one that can help. Everybody else that we whine to can't help. They can commiserate. Don't do that. Now, I'm not saying not not to weep with them that do weep. If somebody's weeping, weep with them. And if somebody's rejoicing, rejoice with them. If somebody's whining, come real close to slapping them across the face and tell them to get their attention. God didn't teach us to do this. And why are you whining to me? I got enough troubles of my own. Think about that. Don't you? We don't need, you don't need somebody else coming to you and whining about. Now, if they're asking you to pray and you all pray together and you look to God and there's a, a peace in knowing that God's going to take care of things, that's different. But if somebody just wants you to feel sorry for them, you don't have a responsibility to do that. Say, cry unto the Lord. And likewise, if we're this way, we don't have the right to whine and make people feel sorry for us. We shouldn't do that. Brother Jonah mentioned there in Daniel chapter 6 something very important to notice there. Darius couldn't find a way to keep from having Daniel thrown into the lion, lion, the den of lions. But the last thing he says is, Thy God will deliver you. That was a statement of absolute confidence in the God of Daniel. Daniel went down in there believing it. Darius went home not believing his own words. You know how I know? Because he had a sleepless night. Didn't matter what he did. So don't just say it. Don't just make a confession. Believe your own confession that God is able to help. Because that next morning when Darius comes, is it Daniel, was, was your God able? 
Not as confident as he was the night before, was he? David says, help, Lord. The only one that can help, he calls upon to help. So that's my first encouragement to you this morning. Troubles are going to come. Jesus said, in this world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Does this be of good cheer mean that the trouble's going to go away? No, he just said, in this world ye shall have tribulation. But it's not the end of the story. The troubles of this world will not overcome you and take you away from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't know whether God would deliver them from the fire. But they knew that God would deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know if the troubles that we have will deliver us from death. Let's be honest with ourselves, folks. Unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. It may be the current illness we have, or it may be something on down the line. But don't fool yourself into thinking that death is not going to come. But here's the deal. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? When Jesus rose from the dead, all of those things became temporary. All of those things stopped being, in the minds of men, the end of the story. As a matter of fact, back way over in the Old Testament, God's people, in a faithful mind, and a faithful heart, not having even truly an understanding of how it was going to happen, could say along with Job, even though my, the skin worms eat my flesh, Yet in my flesh shall I see God. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Job had very little knowledge because Job had very little Bible. If he had any. He probably didn't have any. But God placed in him that he had a Redeemer. And that death was not the end of the story. So let us understand something. That what we're looking for is what Jesus said. Be of good cheer. Meaning, this does not dominate your mind. It dominated the mind of Darius. I don't think it dominated the mind of Daniel. And you know, I've read that passage there, I don't know how many times, and thought there was an S on the end of angel. It says his angel. I don't know if that was the Lord Jesus Christ. But it sure sounds exactly like the fellow that was in there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whatever it was, Daniel saw his deliverance. Help, Lord, for the ungodly, for the godly man seetheth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and with a double heart do they speak. This is today. When you turn on the television, how often do you see a truly godly man standing there proclaiming the word of God? What little we see of religion out there are those that would promote themselves as being religious, just like the Pharisees did, or some other thing that the news has decided this is the definition of Christianity, and so we're going to place that out there for everybody to see. Christianity of the Bible is not what's on the airwaves. 
And what I mean by the postmodernistic idea is that there has been a complete abandonment of the Word of God in the mind of people here in the United States of America. And so it's all become about self. It has all become what this last word, uh, verse says, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. When you have spiritual wickedness in high places, then the entire land is filled with those walking in wickedness. When a sinner is exalted, everybody else wants to sin more because, hey, nothing's happening to him. think those presidents that got Daniel thrown into the den of lions that not how right we got this didn't realize the next day that themselves their wives and their children were all going to be dead they speak vanity everyone with his neighbor people do not talk with one another people talk at one another and people talk about one another but as soon as there is a difference of opinion there is yelling and then people part ways and nothing is resolved and you know what happens in that the devil wins that's all he wants to do is get humans fighting with one another wants to get humans fighting with one another and to have the idea well let me go on with the description here they speak vanity everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak the vanity that they speak is we often surround ourselves with our Facebook friends we surround ourselves with people that agree with us and they flatter us in our knowledge. Problem is, that's a lie. We don't all know complete truth. And the double heart nature to this is that they, they, they speak very highly of themselves as well. Flattering lips and personal pride go along together because if I'm going to flatter you I'm going to want you to flatter me. <laughs> now, I am not saying that our days should be filled with debate. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying is that our conversation ought to be filled with truth. Then the confrontation is going to come on its own. Because if we're not standing for truth, then there will not be truth out there. And so the conversation must be there, but we must define what truth is. Truth is not something derived in the mind of men. Let me state that again very clearly. Truth is not defined in the mind of men or in the experience of men. Truth is defined that Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. 
So what is true? Jesus Christ and the Word of God. If we don't see it that way, then we need to question everything else because there's no true foundation. Just because somebody in their wisdom says, well, I've figured out how morality can exist in a world where the Word of God is not, that's not true. In the hearts of born-again children, there is some chastisement, and there is some reason. But in the hearts of wicked men, like those presidents in the time of Daniel, there's no good in their minds. There's no good in their hearts. That's the reason laws are needed. Paul says the law is for the lawless. Why? Because they don't have the law written on the inside, so they got to have something out here on the outside to check them. But that's the reason what we have today is a complete confusion. Is because America has forgotten that the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. That we can just say we have liberty, but not acknowledge that God is the one that gave it to us. Because if you take God out of it, then you can define liberty by whatever thing you think it means. Now, that's not Bible that I just quoted. That's our founding father. That's Thomas Jefferson, wasn't it? The God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. Don't part those two phrases to say that we have liberty to kill the unborn. No, the God that gave life gave liberty. He defined liberty as life. We have the right to live. That means for the unborn and for the elderly, because folks, check your history. You justify the killing of the unborn, then you're going to be justifying the killing of children that are born that aren't what we would consider whole. And then you start killing the elderly as well because they become a burden on the world. So, oh, wait a minute. That's happening now. There are people in the United States Congress that are advocating cannibalism. That's what's happened to our world. That's the reason what I'm saying is what David was going through is every society. When those that influence society have gone into the background. Y'all would probably agree with me with this. That if in your, in your mind, if you think back to when you were younger, it seemed like there were more godly people back then than there are now. Probably true. <laughs> Many of them have died. And the ones that are children of God don't act as much anymore, so they're not having the salt and light influence on the world that they're supposed to have. And so what does prevail? What prevails is the selfishness and wokeism that you want to call it today. The problem is, is we're fighting the battle in the wrong way. Someone that is dead in their sins, you can yell at them all day long, what you're doing is a sin, they don't care. Romans chapter 1 says every single human being knows that there is a right, that there is a wrong, that there is a God who will judge, and they not only do these things, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's the depravity of man. So what's the answer? We've got to make more laws. You know, I'm thankful that Roe v. Wade was overturned 
But we're fools to think that that's going to stop abortion in the United States of America. National laws won't do it. State laws won't do it. If people want to kill out of convenience, they're going to kill out of convenience. There just needs to be a consequence that's so great that they don't want to do it anymore. That's how laws work. But what we need is something more. Rather than fighting the vitriol and venom of this world by taking the Bible and spewing it out like it's venom, we need to look at what the Word of God says. David sets up a horrible situation here, doesn't he? But then the very next verse, verse 3, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. David says, God's going to take care of this. And so I'm going to trust in God. Did Daniel speak out against the presidents ever? Nope, he trusted God. God delivered him and God took care of everything else. That's something that we need to do. Now, I'm not saying that while we live in the free society that we do, that we shouldn't vote for good things. I'm not saying that at all. We should be doing that. But there's something that we need to be doing long before that, and that is acknowledging that as much as we detest what's going on in our world, the God of heaven hates it all the more. They have perverted his creation. And frankly, we kind of allowed it to happen. Who have said, these are the ones that have flattering lips and a tongue that speaks proud things, who have said with our lips... With our tongue we will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? There's something there that I want you to see that, that is very, very fundamental to my children's generation and all of us. There is a prevailing idea of the evolution of man's thought that will solve all problems. That we will become wise enough that crime will go away, that hunger will go away, that any problem and vice of this world will be taken away by the things that we say. The heart of man is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And out of the heart does man speak. So if the world is filled with deceitful hearts, then the solution is not within man. It's not within any man except the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also God. To have the idea that if we'll just be smart enough and we'll stop. Well, here's, here's, here's the, you, you only um, fear that what you don't know enough about. That's the, the idea that is promoted against with those that are against homosexuality. Well, you don't understand everything enough, and if you're just smarter, then you wouldn't fear it anymore. I don't fear it. I fear the judgment of God against it <laughs> because the Bible speaks pretty clearly about that kind of stuff. But the prevailing idea in David's time was God's not judging us. We're doing just fine. Therefore, our own wisdom has done this for us and we've made a better society. Those are the words of Nebuchadnezzar.
But God knows what's going on. David already said, the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips. I said, well, Brother Bryce, I still see people out there speaking that way. Yes, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. The Bible says God shall take care of it. Don't join in. Don't be surprised if it's still there. God is going to take care of it. Because look at verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. God says, I hear my children cry. You know what that means? If we are fighting against the current trends out there, simply with debate and saying, we're smarter than your smarts, God's not hearing that. God is wanting even the most intelligent among us to fall on his knees and cry out, Lord, help. Now, we need to keep our pure minds, yes. But to have the idea that we're going to change an entire society by debating with these fools, we're making a mistake. God has said, I'm, I, I hear the poor, the poor in spirit. I hear my children. And because of their oppression, now that's the deal. Are you just offended in mine or does it offend you right down in here? If it's not offending you right down in here, get off your high horse and realize how much this broken world offends the Lord and how much we should not feel at home here and cry out. Because for the oppression of the poor, how does he know the poor are oppressed? They said, Lord, help. For the sighing of the needy. Oh, wow. You mean, what, what, what is there? What is there in a, in a sigh? There's no words. You're exasperated. And if a person is needy, that means they have nothing. And yet the God of heaven hears. You want to know where the real problem came that got us in the situation we are right now? It came into churches two or three generations before. When the devil lied again and men believed him, yea, hath God said, and we got 200 different revisions of the Bible. And we got higher criticism of the Bible that says you have to have man's commentaries and, all, and that the word of God doesn't exist in the English language. That's what happened. Got the children of God to doubt it. Then it's a piece of cake after that. We need to get back and trust this because notice what he says. Remember he, he talked about men's words. He says they're vanity. It's flattering. It's double-hearted. It's prideful. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Look at the difference between the words of men and the word of God. Every single philosophy of men has failed. So, Brother Bryce, there's new philosophies out there. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Same thing packaged differently. These philosophies have always been around. And they have all failed generation after generation after generation. They have not stood the test of time. So, Brother Bryce, how do you know that? Because there was something called the Renaissance. <laughs> 
And then there was classicalism. And then there was romanticism. Then there's modernism. Then there's postmodernism. And there's going to be something else that are all on the philosophies of men saying, well, the previous generation, we need to tweak what they said a little bit. But the words of the Lord are pure words. They have stood the test of time. Purified seven times. That means completely. The word of God has withstood the test of time. And it's still here. The word of God has withstood persecution. When government said, give us your Bibles, and they killed thousands, somehow the words continued on. How? Thou shalt keep them. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, there's a big debate out there. Well, that, that just means God's going to preserve the people that cried out to him. Yes, but that's not what it says. The direct antecedent is the word of God, not the people. The closest thing to the word them is the word of God. I know a little bit of English. <laughs> and God keeps his word from that generation forever. When God says something, it's done. It is complete. It cannot be thwarted. He says he can declare the end from the beginning. How is that possible? Because he's God. His words are pure. They have even, well, you know what? People say, well, the, the Bible is, is, is starting to break down now. No, men's opinions of the Bible are being broken down. Misinterpretations of the Bible are being broken down. False religions are being broken down. But the word of God stands. Thou shalt keep them. Why does it stand? It's because God keeps his word. So it's not vanity. And what is it that God keeps his word about? The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. Those words are going to continue on because they are true. And even though sometimes we don't see it, ultimately it is true. God does deliver in time. God delivered in the time of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God delivered in the time of Daniel and the den of lions. God has delivered you. God has delivered our nation. Has he done it in vain? That's up to us, isn't it? God has preserved us a little longer with the freedom that we have here. Let's not take it for granted. Because the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. David said the problem's not going away. That's one of the points of the psalm. Is even after David is delivered, Saul and all his minions are dead, and David is king, wicked men are going to come back up. Didn't take very long. Solomon started off great. Solomon went to the dogs. And then what did his sons do? That very next generation, the kingdom split because of ungodliness. But here is the promise that we need to understand, folks. We need to not lose hope that we have in the society today. There's so, many, so much intelligence and, and, and so much going on in, in our schools and in our universities that is against the word of God. We need to just continue we need to continue praying three days inside our house. Don't change our tactics unless we haven't been praying. 
If you've been praying, don't change your tactics. If you've been reading the Word of God, don't change that. If you've been going to church, don't change that. Just keep doing it. Why? Because that's what God told you to do. And God's going to take care of it. Say, well, I want to leave a better place for my children. I do too. But that ain't up to me. I can leave a better place in my home and in the homes of my children, but I can't change this entire country. As a matter of fact, I'm going against the teaching of Jesus to think that I can. Over in Matthew, when he talks about, was it Matthew Matthew 13? He talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares. Said he sowed good seed, but tares sprung up. By the way, the tares always seem more prolific than the good stuff. But in the end, what happens? God sends the reapers, the tares are taken care of, and the good wheat is gathered into his garner every single time. Jesus taught that. Jesus taught that even the kingdom of God, while we're here on earth, we are going to have these troubles all the time. It is not the job of the church to make a utopia because, folks, that doesn't exist on this fallen earth. It is the job of the church to promote the kingdom of Christ and to live in holiness until the Lord returns and we have the new Jerusalem. We are to live as sojourners here. We'll close out with one thought that Paul gave to young Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll start in verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. He is not telling Timothy to get born again. This guy's already preaching. He's a born-again child of God and an established preacher in the area that he's at. And so when he says, lay hold on eternal life, he says, brother, you got eternal life. You need to start living it. Lay hold of it. Now, in this fallen world, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Why does he mention that? Because Jesus ended up being killed, didn't he? Jesus didn't change his confession so that he wouldn't be killed. Jesus said the truth. Pilate had him killed. Jesus rose from the dead. The lesson there is this, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality. Why did Jesus keep his mouth shut before Pontius Pilate? Because his death was not the end of the story. Jesus himself said, unless the seed go in the ground, the fruit cannot come forth. Brethren, as we have these trials and troubles and these conflicts In our generation, it's no different than David. There is evil in high places, but we don't need to attack them on social media. We don't need to attack that. We need to be storming to the feet of Jesus Christ, going to the throne, falling down and saying, Lord, help. 
and realizing at the same time we need to keep giving a good confession. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Keep giving a good confession knowing that there's coming a time in his time. I love this work. Which the Lord in his times, he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. David started off by saying, Lord, help. Potentate means powerful, right? It means all-powerful. It doesn't just mean he has all the power from the world. It means all power that exists in the world came from him. The only potentate is the very source of all power. And he is going to show himself. He's going to take care of this. So what do we do in the meantime? Go to church. Speak peaceably. Love without dissimulation. Keep that good confession that Jesus Christ died for you and you're thankful for it. Keep on keeping on. Press on. Fight that good fight of faith. The good fight of faith is not arguing over doctrine. The good fight of faith is when everything oppresses, you pray. And you see that angel of the Lord come in and intervene. And ultimately, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God will sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the end of the story. Look forward to that day. This psalm, if anything, reminds us to look for the better day that is coming. May the Lord bless you always.